with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, I have Dr. Manfred today, (laughs) and he is the Distinguished Clinical Professor of Leadership Development and Organizational Change and a Chaired Professor of Leadership Development Emeritus at INSEAD. He brings a different view to the much-studied subjects of leadership and the dynamics of individual and organizational change, bringing to bear his knowledge and experience of economics from the University of Amsterdam, management from Harvard Business School, psychoanalysis from the Canadian Psychoanalytic Society and the International Psychoanalytic Association. He scrutinizes the interface between international management, psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, and dynamic psychiatry. His specific areas of interest are leadership, career dynamics, executive stress, entrepreneurship, family business, succession planning, cross-cultural management, team building, coaching, and the dynamics of corporate transformation and change. He directs the Challenge of Leadership Executive Education Program as well. The Financial Times has featured his work, The Economist, and he has been rated one of the world's top 50 leading management thinkers, as well as one of the most influential contributors to human resource management. In 2008, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Leadership Association. And you know what? He has written or co-authored 49 books. It's probably 50 at this point. (laughs) 400 papers, articles, or chapters in books. Uh, He has received so many honors from so many different organizations, and he is an outdoorsman. So I just finished a conversation I was saying before we started to record. In my conversation with Henry Mintzberg, I discovered that he is an outdoorsman. Sir, before we begin our formal conversation, what are some of your favorite places? in the world to experience the outdoors? Well, there's some extremes. I've been, uh, I mean, with the pygmies in Central Africa, and it's quite interesting to uh, see how they and can read the forest and what kind of people they are. I wrote, actually wrote once an article about that, about team dynamics. They, I felt they were the most liberated group because uh, both women and men hunt. They do everything together and have certain special habits. They're very happy people too. Wow. Uh, sing all the time. And then you have the other extreme going to the mountains of the Pamir, which is uh, it was a different, difficult experience for me to suddenly be transported by helicopter 5,000 meters. And suddenly your body starts to do funny things. Very different landscape, open, very, uh, very cold when I was there the first time. 
minus 20 plus the windshield factor was quite interesting and your body starts to behave differently and then you have places like the Altai Mountains which are also Altai which is also in Gossi uh, the higher up the lower one it's very funny it reminded me of Colorado it's a similar similar impression with with the the, the horses etc and even in France where I live I was recently in Camargue which is an it's a big swampy area, or you go to uh, another really big swamp, which is uh, in Brazil, uh, the Pantanal, which I like because there you can see something. Because there have been many wilderness areas, and uh, I was actually uh, a few years ago before the pandemic, I was uh, in the uh, uh, there was it's a man called Arne Arseniev, and he wrote, he was an explorer. It's probably one of my fantasies about him. And he wrote an interesting book called Derso Usula, which is about an explorer in the region which is close to North Korea and China. Hmm. It's an, two forests comes together, the boreal forest and the tropical forest. And there's where the Siberian tiger lives. And I must, my craziness, I waited 18 hours to see a tiger. And 18 hours is too long. I mean, I can sit eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, <laughs> but 18 hours. The only thing I saw was two pigeons. Two wild pigeons. Two wild pigeons. Yeah, it was quite disappointing. Although every night I was living with a trapper, there was an enormous barking because the trapper had caged his dogs and he loses every... And the favorite food of uh, Siberian tigers, guess what is? Dogs. Yeah. So every every night there was was obviously a tiger in the neighborhood and dogs had to bark like crazy. But he couldn't get at the dogs. But the trapper told me every year he loses some dogs. Uh, due to the tigers, but um, I, I plan to go back there. But with the strange things happening, I uh, just was telling you I came back yesterday from Moscow. I tried to get back to Moscow, but that was not a direct flight because my all my flights were cancelled one after the other. And finally, in desperation, I tried to go. Maybe it was a flight to Brussels. That what I live in Paris, so I said I could go to Brussels, take the train, the train, the, the Thales, and go back to Paris. But halfway over Stockholm, which happens to be uh, the area where my wife uh, comes from, you know, happy you know, happy hour, uh, <laughs> no happy hour, the captain said very quietly that we had to turn because we are not allowed to enter the airspace. And so back to Moscow. And so I finally made it flying immediately to Istanbul to get to another airline because basically Aeroflot is not no longer Istanbul. But it was kind of interesting. I I had to, I was, I promised to give a talk. Uh, there's a program there actually at the Higher School of Economics, which is an elite university. And I once mentioned to my first analyst, the number, I number two of them, told me that he had this man in supervision. I was also in supervision sir, at the time, who uh, was Russian. I was interested in Russia at the time because of liter- actually many of the Russian literature. And said, why don't you meet each other? So I had lunch with him and said, what do you want to do? You want to be a psychoanalyst and see a few patients? Or you want to change the world? That was years ago, huh? Wow. And, he, and, and so he, uh, of course, he was a fresh analyst. So he, wanted to say, so he was quiet. But then he thought about it. And he decided to set up a program called Psychonic Psychology and Management Consulting, which is extremely successful. I guess the Russians are desperate after communism to uh, have a way of rethinking. And he's very worried at the moment, by the way. I also had uh, breakfast with him about, uh, you know, psychoanalysis was forbidden during the Soviet Union time, like it was forbidden in Nazi Germany. And uh, and so, uh, but anyhow, it's, I was there, uh, I gave a lecture, and it was very successful. Uh, uh, it's an, it has been an extremely successful program. So there's a need for those kinds of things. But the... I was there also to give another lecture, and it is quite tragic what's happening. I don't want to end, you know, start to psychoanalyze Putin, but you can call it the Versailles complex, which is uh, maybe a new term. You know, you, you remember the Versailles Treaty at the time of between the First World War, and uh, you know, the, the Germans got a rough deal. And I must say the Americans were so smart in the Second World War not to have a Versailles deal, but having a Marshall. General Marshall was a very visionary man. And that has been partially the problem, I think, when I look at the situation, that what Russia needed after it fell apart is not triumph, that finally communism fell apart, but a Marshall plan. Hmm. To, uh, 
but what happens, of course, is you have this. Um, I, I wrote a book years ago called uh, Shaka Zulu about despotism, and I was interested in uh, Shaka Zulu is the Zulu king who uh, united Southern Africa with a special way of looking at the world. Putin, of course, and I mentioned there that paranoia is the disease of kings. And of course, what happens, and I've written quite a bit on narcissism, when you, you know, the, you have to be somewhat narcissistic to want a leadership job. But when in the job, you get all the perks of power. And, uh, you know, there was an, an American statesman, Stevenson, who said, flattery is all right, as long as you don't inhale. But very quickly, you start to inhale quite, quite a bit. And you could see that. You saw it with Trump. Now, this is kind of every, the morning, everybody has praise hail to the chief, how great he is, because he is so insecure. And the same thing, I mean, I, you know, I mean, of course, Putin is a very different kettle of fish. Um, you know that his grandfather was the cook of Stalin. You probably don't know that. It was interesting. Think about being the cook of Stalin, how it, you have to be, you know, most of the time, think about poisoning and things like that. And that, of course, he wanted to be a spy very young. I think he was a kind of young man when he knocked on the door of the KGB and said, I want to be a spy. And they laughed, although they admired probably this young man. But you have to do something more. So he became a lawyer, I guess. But what I'm trying to say is that you, you eventually you surround yourself with people who only tell you what you want to hear. Yes. And you saw that the way he behaved at that security meeting. And uh, nobody, but the reality is the Russians learned that, you know, they, they knew about the famous knock on the door at four o'clock in the morning. That was not a milkman, it was somebody else. So they become very quickly careful about how, what you can say and what you can say. But I could see, I mean, I'm on a number of WhatsApp and I have so many Russian students over the years, some of them in quite senior positions and um, they are not happy campers. I can tell you that it's uh, not happy campers, particularly since I think that 2 million Ukrainians or so in Russia. So there's so many intermarriages and things like that. And uh, this situation is very tragic. I wish it could have been different, but you know, I, I wrote I wrote in my one of my, my the pandemic has been good to me in, in many ways, and <laughs> negative say to say that, but I couldn't travel. And I realized after 28 hours of travel to come, what normally takes three and a half hours to come from here to from, from Moscow to here. That uh, I had a lot, a lot of time on my hands. So I wrote actually eight, eight books. Uh, writing has been my antidepressant uh, during the pandemic. Of course, nice to see people face to face uh, as opposed to you know this all this two dimensionality. But uh, I it gave me some time to think about various things, and I find that being a uh, teacher of leadership, I try to make my mother's contribution. But I have. They asked me actually in in Russia, my students there, have you ever dealt with political leaders? Mm. I mean, very rarely. It would probably be such a, not such a bad idea to make them a little bit more self-reflective, um, more self-understanding, and realizing that in the case of Putin, you can see who, how his internal theater becomes acted out on a massive scale and has such a terrible impact, like you see with so many leaders. And, it's, uh, I mean, you look at the the WhatsApp conversations going on that I'm receiving now from my students. I mean, think about the Russian leadership brand. Think about being a Russian. It was like being a German just after the war. Anytime they could scream at you and say, you know, dirty German, what have you done? And things like that. And now we have this kind of thing happening. And uh, I, I made three comments when I ended my class because uh, people were becoming panicky. One was that ideology overrules rationality. And then I said, uh, you know, paranoia is the disease of kings. And he who rides a tiger cannot dismount. And when you see what he did in uh, Gosni and how he flattened that uh, particular city, the cities there, the more already, already bombs are already hitting major cities, more atrocities can be predicted. For what? I mean, uh, to be a demagogue, you have a few things to do. Michel Bims may taking a, a, a macro or social perspective. In the first place, you need enemies. And so it is much nicer 
and we are, you know, we like enemies in a way. You know, we are, we have, when you think about our personality, our personality inside our personality is first place, we are, is a big elephant. And the first elephant is egocentricity. When I, when people tell stories, I mean, I, I use a lot of, I ask people to tell their story. And of course, you relate it to yourself. I said, I have the same problem, the same, that, same, that kind of thing. The other part of the elephant is the paranoia, because when you are in Paleolithic times, in the bushes, there could be, you see something pinkish. It could be a beautiful wild strawberries, but it could be the tongue of a saber-toothed tiger. So you have to be somewhat paranoid. And remember Andy Gross' book, maybe you remember, only the paranoid survive you know, in Europe. So the third part of the elephant, of course, has to do for tit for tat. Have a tit for tat. The lex talionis, which is rather stupid. The golden rule would be nice about the lex talionis. And then you have also the elephant doesn't like change. Mm. There is Putin, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe, and his resentment is building up. And he feels, you know, here's the largest country in the world. And people and people say GNP, GNP of a small country, only with nukes. That's the only difference you have. You'd be a big country, but what? And you go to the Siberia, many areas, it looks like the 19th century Tolstoy, Matarots, I mean, where the people live. Of course, the glitter you have in Moscow is a different story. So it's prideful, and uh, the resentment builds up. And of course, as a good leader, like Trump also was in that respect, you read what the Germans called the zeitgeist, you know, the spirit of the time, so the historical moment. So you articulate the resentment in Trump, articulate the resentment of the non-educated white person who felt threatened. And so there he was and said things that you're not supposed to be upset, but uh, they liked it. So he, uh, you know, leaders who rise up and like Hitler, you know, he knew the Versailles soap opera, you know, the kind of how people, how the Germans felt that they were being exploited, being not being. And so now we have, and it is sad because it could be the other thing could be so differently. It could be, yes. it could be so different. I had so much hope, actually, when I've been so many times in Russia after perestroika. And so I hope for the country, I've seen all these changes and you know, it, was a, it was very chaotic. And of course, what he did was he gave them some certain pride. There is, the, as a foodie, you have now star restaurants in Moscow. I mean, it was never for the, just this year, star restaurant, fantastic restaurant. You have to see, you have to eat the food before. Not very attractive. Moscow is very glittery. Very, uh, the houses are painted now. It looks all very nice, the same as in Petersburg. But now this, and, uh, I mean, and of course, the next thing is, uh, if you are a good dictator, you could control the media and you, and you make people anxious. I mean, you're, it's nice to say, you know, we have the nukes, you know, making people anxious is one characteristic of dictatorship. And, and the rule of law is very flexible. So as you, if you are a businessman, that's one of the sad things, I feel. Uh, when you look at, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the youngest anymore, when you think about Japan after the war. I remember when, when a statement was made in Japan, you said, my God, that is that's going to fall apart any moment, whatever they made. Now it's a qual- high quality products. Now you go to Russia, with all the brains they have, well, they have Gazprom, natural resources, fine, but, you know, uh, is that it? And some, you know, some steel and some, uh, book, uh, you know, some alum- aluminum, but where is the, uh, you know, where are the brand names? And the, and the best and the brightest you find in uh, Silicon Valley. <laughs> they moved. It's uh, you know you have an, an, you know people or they keep their mouth shut and say okay I can have a good life there I just keep my mouth shut don't talk and ignore it or you go abroad and so the ones inside you know they are quiet and live somewhat of an inauthenticity you know show the you know they it's like a little bit not yet as bad in the Stalinistic time people were so scared that you know this knock at four o'clock in the morning. And having a Mr. Stalin every day looking at a list of people who are going to be eliminated. You have personal family history growing up in Holland. And there's, there's a very, very real lived experience with that way of being, that, that environment, that context. Here we are, whether it's in, in, in the United States, some of the authoritarianism, as you mentioned, or tendencies towards what is it about the human condition that we don't seem to learn? I can tell you. When you look at the United States, 
I mean, not just the United States, but the United States is very well presented. It's an age of anxiety. And when you look at the number of people who take anti-anxiety pills, overdose, and then you have this, what to Europeans and other cultures is very strange, the gun culture. Now, I'm, an, I'm a hunter. I go deer hunting and I go pheasant hunting. But do you need a submachine gun? <laughs> would have for that no and if you have a gun maybe you should have your mental health checked up uh, being a little bit careful about that i i find this uh, and as you know and then you get it's a bit like the tobacco period where go, smoking is good for your health having more guns will protect you it's not true most people get shot, shot by family members and you don't need pistols uh, you know we live in an age of anxiety no, no no wonder you have global warming which is a big thing and has been in the news all the time because I mean and, and the younger generation is very aware of it you have also, and we had before that you think about Dr. Strangelove you know maybe you've seen the movie the sellers you know the, 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 the nuclear holocaust and now you have Putin again saying we have nukes of course I get intrigued by when you see Musk and uh, Richard Branson and the man of Amazon shooting rockets in the air I mean I mean could give some better working environment for their people, but that's another story. Then you have an enormous income inequality, which is an invitation to uh, to riots, to chaos. You have the terrorism, which is still there. You know, every time there's somewhere a bomb, but it has been there all the time, but not to that extent. It has been also in the 19th century or whatever. Then you have this migration. I mean, look at you and uh, Trump and his wall here. We could get now new influx of Ukrainians. Actually, I can tell you, I, uh, I remember doing my... My, my dissertation writing at the Harvard Business School, and I wrote an entrepreneurship. De facto, if you want more entrepreneurs, have a war. Because people are displaced. They have no, they're not part of the social structure. And so they start new things because mm-hmm. they don't fit anywhere. It's a terrible thing to say so. But, I mean, immigrants are usually very entrepreneurial. Then you have, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. And then we have seen around, and it was Warren Buffett who said it so clearly, when the tide goes out, uh, you see it swimming naked, and many of the leaders we had, I mean, look at Brazil, and who's trying to imitate Trump about make politicizing, having an injection. I mean, uh, you get measles injections, you get, I mean, I go to Africa, yellow fever, otherwise you can get in, and all this anti-vax business. Real men don't inject themselves. They protect their body. They want freedom. You want freedom to drive drunken, drunkenly? You want, there was a person now just on the autobahn somewhere who drove 490 kilometers an hour. Freedom to speed, you know, yeah, must have, it was a Bugatti. It's crazy. And now we have war to add to the whole combination. We had wars all the time, but this is a, the first major war in Europe. Uh, you get a little bit pessimistic about, and of course, people regress. When people get anxious, they regress. And when they regress, what they're looking for? A strong man. Mm. By the way, women make better leaders. They are less narcissistic. Looking for a strong man. And you have always some people who rise to the occasion and say, now I'm the I'm the I'm the snake oil salesman. I'm going to help you. I have I promise you anything. Of course, it's only and look also here and I mean coming back to the leaders, Boris Johnson. I mean, uh, influenced by Churchill or even autobiography of Churchill. But was he really looking at Brexit, which is the most stupid thing that could have happened for mm-hmm. the younger generation, shooting yourself in your foot? I mean, going back to uh, it's stupid. I mean, I have two children in London. I mean, to go to England now, all the rules and regulations. I mean, we are going to, you're going to be entrepreneurial. They have more rules and regulations than before. It is <laughs> self-inflicted. Anybody who can think. But of course, I said again, ideology overrules rationality. I mean, the fantasy of Great Britannia rules the waves. Forget it. By the way, what was interesting, listening to the, the person, a woman from the Duma, who's an important person, apparently, and she talks about this under, she was quoting Spengler, that the Untergang des Abendlandes, the fall of the, 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 the Western world. You know, of course, she had in mind, uh, Europe has already fallen anyhow, but the other one she had in mind was America, and China will take over. And, and, and so the, the sphere is also, Russia will be the little brother of China. As a psychoanalyst, I'm talking about <laughs> very different in social political, but that's important. The need of having enemies and the need—I mean, the regression. When you when you saw this Trump splitting, it's us versus them. The people are with me. People is the white cowboy and the black cowboy It's the most primitive defense mechanism, as yeah. opposed to having a sense of humor. 
and uh, you know, you know intellectualized and other defense, but really having more sophisticated ones. And you see how quickly we as herd animals regress. What's the antidote? No, I mean, the uh, I was on a BBC program. Uh, it was a kind of panel discussion about, I wrote an article about the super rich. And so they asked me to make a comment. And then they said, things, things, and he cut it out, by the way, you know, you know, in programs, they cut things out. They asked a question about, uh, you you can cut the whole, the whole thing out. But uh, I, they asked the question, if you would have 10 or 100 billion dollars, what would you do with it? Which is a good question. I mean, it's certainly beyond my imagination. But uh, I said, educate women. Because women are the culture carriers, and they are the ones, I mean, you see so many countries where uh, women are kept dumb, you know, which is, you know, Afghanistan being an extreme example. And so educate women, because if you have educated people, you have a higher chance, a higher chance that they, uh, that's what I try to do. I try to create reflective leaders, people who have some self-knowledge, some self-awareness, have no knee-jerk reaction, have some ability to deals the complexity of what's going on there. It was an assistant. Did Putin really think very, and he's normally quite a planner. He's a judoka, but not a chess player, but he, he, he thinks a little bit further. But does he still have good advice? I don't want a dumb leader if the dumb leader is that smart to say I'm dumb and I listen to my advisors. But that's not, that's, I wonder, it's the echo chamber. But think about the, the systemic implication for what he's doing. I mean, what he had in mind, of course, in the case of, of Ukraine, was a blitzkrieg of two one day, like happened in the Crimean, and then uh, hooray, there we have another territory. But it, the, 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 the Ukrainians have a long history, actually, of partisanship, and it's going to be a very much a Pyrrhic victory, if it's any victory, Pyrrhic. Mm. It's interesting to see, in a way, he has created the situation of the, the tsaristic time with the boyars, which were the nobles, which are now the oligarchs. And uh, of course, in this case, the Siloviki, particularly the one who he knows from the inner circle of the KGB, who has to have important positions, but they don't like it when their assets are frozen. They don't like it when their children can go to boarding school anymore in, in London or the United States. They don't like it. You know, they like to have travel. Of course, they can go to the Maldives or the Seychelles, or whatever, Thailand, but they don't mind going to Western Europe. They don't mind going to America. They mm. don't mind going to Australia. And, you know, it's uh, and now suddenly they cannot fly. Even their private plane cannot fly, I assume. They are uh, also blocked. Of course, they will f- eventually find ways to go around it, but they have houses everywhere. They probably have houses here in Paris, but they can't visit the houses spontaneously anymore. So they don't like it. So I don't know what kind of, my hope is that there will be some, and of course, economic pressure when you have people standing in lines at the banks to get money out, the worst of the ruble, because there is some kind of a middle class now in in Russia, and they like to travel. I mean, I think it was the fourth largest travel country. I mean, tourists, as tourists are concerned, to travel abroad. I mean, this is a long winter, so they like to go to warmer places. Well, and you have a number of former students. What are some stories or narratives that you hear from them? No, the perspective is mixed. One, of course, is the problem of some of them. They are married to Ukraine, or you know, that's uh, the the mixture of it, and that causes serious problems. Then, of course, there are some who uh, there is an element, and that I believe that you know, you know, I I, I wrote a book which is not finished yet, which is uh, it's a book about. Walking in in this in the wilderness, but having a discussion with my alter ego, uh, which is an, it's a gnome. So I meet a gnome somewhere in the wilderness, and we start a discussion about life. And one thing has to do with the big C of compromise. Hmm. It means that you have to learn about empathy and compassion, and the, the element of uh, putting yourself in the shoes of the Russians. At one period, I remember when this perestroika took place, and suddenly you have worked all your life and you have no pension. I mean, the pension is worthless, and also the country has looked, you know, like you know, lost, so lost cause. So the element of pride, if you as a Jesuit or educated person, you know the seven capital sins, and what's what's the worst sin? Of you have gluttony, you have envy, 
yeah, greed, you know, and what is the most, what's the worst thing according to those church fathers? I mean, of course, of course, you won the, you won the lottery, pride. <laughs> and the fame, and you have the famous, the famous word in uh, the Greek word, hubris, yep. excessive pride, that's the problem. And so their pride was hurt. Putin's pride is hurt. And so he was seen as a second-class citizen by the other ones of the, you know, the major economies. And that has been sitting there and sitting there and building up. Most politicians, not psychologists, and to have realized the importance. I mean, look at the symbolism when he comes out and the flags and all the pomp and circumstances, pride. And yep. so he brought pride to Russia to some extent. But now you, know, you have a leadership brand. I mean, if you talk about the Hitler leadership brand, you know, people don't get excited. Stalin leadership brand, people forget, in Russia at least, what a, what a mass murder he was. But now you have the Putin's leadership brand. I mean, before that, you say, okay, he's, an, he's a dictator, but uh, you know, he's a show dictator, and he knows how to play his card, but now you start to wonder. And of course, it's a contamination that uh, has an effect on all Russians. And they feel ashamed. Many I was reading some of those WhatsApp. They feel embarrassed what's happened, embarrassed to start this war. With. And of course, we, we identify as the underdog, which is Ukraine. I mean, he has done actually, he has been so short that he has done a fantastic job in nation building. Hmm. Uh, and, and nation building. Ukraine has become a nation thanks to him. He also has done a fantastic job as Macron, the president here in France, said, you know, NATO is brain dead. NATO is no longer brain dead. He's done a yes. fantastic job to do that. And he has a fantastic job to accelerate Ukraine's acceptance to the European Union. He's done a great job. He mean, but not to the job he wanted to accomplish. That's the problem. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> what else is the antidote? A couple other elements. Education. Uh, Churchill always said that you know democracy is a very you know it's you have to, it's a work in process it's you have to work at it all the time that's the reason i'm concerned about america what has been happening there and he also made a comment what he made a comment kind of cynically democracy just talk to the average voter now in these days you have to be an actor a sportsman or a tv anchor to be a, to be become a political leader now, Zelensky, I looked at him I, by accident. I was doing some exercise, turned on the on CNN, and there he was giving a speech in München. And I felt he did a pretty good job. Of course, when you listen to some of the people in Russia, they said he's a drug addict. I mean, you know, Putin talks about all those Nazis. He's Jewish. It's almost for the Nazi, but what the hell? You, know, also, you might identify as the aggressor. He's a drug addict. And he is an, an, a Nazi. So that's the accusation. Of course, every country has extreme elements. You have not yet Nazis in Ukraine, neo-Nazis. And the same thing when you look at some of the people who are fighting the Ukraine from the Russian side, also for the extreme. Like you, know, you have the Proud Boys in America. I mean, mm -hmm. It's another group. So you have it everywhere. And I guess people, uh, would, if they would have some balance, maybe they would think twice what... Uh, what it stands for. So uh, the other, of course, what I said before, you need a free press. Now, is there a free press in the West? Because when you have Fox News, you have uh, you know the, the Murdoch family, you know, they control some of the presses. Is that a free press? But you need at least some diversity of press. That's what you can say. I mean, I read five newspapers to get a sense of, from the, from the Wall Street Journal to whatever, to the other side to get a sense of to get some kind of a balance, to try to understand. You will always be biased. You always have your particular um, particular orientation. And you need a very solid judiciary. Now, again, that worries me about America, that the Supreme Court has become totally politicized. Mm. To have also lifetime appointments, I wonder about the good thing of that either. That's, but that's my, I mean, it's my, my I, don't, I don't think the founder, the founders of America had those scenarios in mind. It's very, very difficult to predict how country evolves. But that's some dangers, dangers there. And of course, what you see happening too, when you want to be a dictator, I was writing an article in Praise of Dictators, is that you have to be, you have to make people scared. 
So this kind of secret service that you have in, let's not get FB and I got in Russia, but and the military because the control over the military and the control of the secret service is very important because of your paranoia. When you are an, when you're a person like that, every leader I said needs somebody who tells him or her you're full of shit. Mm. Uh, needs a fool, some countervailing powers. Was Galbraith already talked about need for killing and strong institutions. And labor unions are important, like it or not. And labor unions are important to push back. But particularly the press is important. The free press is important to push back. Now, of course, the social media. But the social media have done a terrible job because of greed. So I, I talked to one of my students who is a, is a media baron. And he said, you know, it's very expensive. Journalists are very, good journalism is very expensive to do some fact-checking. And that, of course, now they are forced more and more to do some fact-checking. But before that, when you see what the social media have done, I'm not on Facebook. I think my daughter might have put me on Facebook. But I'm not on Facebook because I, I've ignored it. But because I feel I feel it, uh, it's, of course, very useful for people to keep in contact. I, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, but Facebook, I felt, and then WhatsApp, because I have an idea of my students are thinking, so they communicate with each other. But Facebook, I felt uh, as a reaction, I felt that it done such so much harm. Somebody close, close here is I just report uh, even report on the the genocide in Rwanda. Just came from there. Um, Facebook has done, and uh, so uh, one has to be very careful. And people feel very comfortable when their own point of view. I don't feel so comfortable when I was li- look listening to t- the Russian television a few days, two days ago. And saw this lady speak of the Duma. I didn't feel comfortable. I had the tendency to turn it off and go back to my favorite favorite ones like the BBC or or CNN. You know, I feel comfortable. Or Euronews. I feel comfortable with the news there, but I didn't feel comfortable. But it was interesting still to listen to how people's mind gets shifted if you give enough propaganda. And again, coming back to the, the comment I made, we are hurt animals. There some Italian. Uh, neurologists who talk about uh, mirror neurons that we imitate. Mm-hmm. And then you, you go into an elevator and you look in one direction, people also look in one direction, turn around, they also go turn around. You, know, you see how that all, when you, when I, when you yawn, other people yawn, when you sit like, I was, I was having this board meeting just before. So I do this and see a lot of people doing this suddenly too. You see what kind of imitation the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the question I keep coming back to, and, and, and listeners have heard me say this maybe a couple times now, but how do we as a species, as a, as a group of human beings evolve to a place where we can proactively handle things like uh, climate change or proactively uh, update our operating system. You know, when when the founding fathers of the United States said you're a, you're a, a justice for life, well, people lived to sixty three. <laughs> it wasn't like like the like the pension system. I mean, it was uh, uh, Otto von Bismarck sixty five. I mean, people died at fifty five. Yes, I mean, yes. Or the right to bear arms. To your point, <laughs> it, there there weren't there weren't weapons that they could have even imagined uh, today. And right. and of course. So it, it's, are we updating the operating system? I literally view it that way. In some ways, we're running DOS. That's from the 1980s <laughs> or the 1880s or the 1780s. I tell you a story. There is a story about the flowers of Catherine the Great. Now, in St. Petersburg, there is this castle, and there was a visitor who wanted to visit the garden. In the middle of the garden was a soldier. So this is a curious visitor. He says, what are you doing there? And the soldier said, I don't know. So he goes to the lieutenant. He says, lieutenant, why is the soldier standing in the middle of the garden? What's he doing there? You know? But it must be a story, you know, so whatever it might be. He kept on asking and discovered that 100 years earlier, Catherine the Great was walking through the garden. I and mean, since he in Russia, I was talking about Russia, so he was walking in the garden. And there was this beautiful flower. She called the soldier and said, you stand here so nobody steps on the flower. The soldier was still standing there 100 years later. So what you said is very true. I feel a bit ambivalent because you asked me to do a podcast, and here I am. I'm a professor of management. That's my original title, and I'm what I what I try to do is really to create more reflective leaders, to create better teams. I mean, give me somewhat neurotic teams, and I I think my school is probably now the best in team coaching in the world. That's what I'm very. I guess I 
uh, where they cloned so many people. I also tried to create better places to work. And of course, one thing is to have people, I wrote funny books like Tax, Money, Happiness, and Death, about how to create a better lifestyle. Yeah. So that's what I do. And in particular, since you know, 95 or 85% of the people, when you do the Gallup poll, of people in the world don't feel engaged in the companies. So they have a wasted life. I mean, you have only one life. So I, I, one of the books I wrote, or the eight books, was Covadis, you know, which in the, in the end, we're all looking for meaning. And I try to make a little bit, I don't like models, so that's not my thing, but I said your meaning is rather dependent on what are your talents, your competences. Some people have that good with their body, maybe become athletes, or other people have good analytical skills. Then it, of course, has to do with control. control. What choices can you make? And I was... Uh, asked to give a speech in Holland in my old alma mater after 50 years. And I realized that many of the people I was in classes are dead. And many of them made extremely bad choices in life having to do with partner and also career. Mm. So make, learning how to make choices. But the most important part is, of course, when you think about the famous Harvard Longitudinal Study, 1938, to still, I mean, so many directors, what is most important to life when they ask the people in the study? It's belonging, having good relationships with family and friends. And then I believe I added something more to it, which has to do with transcendence. To, like you, you try to do something more than just doing your own, doing something for society, doing something more than just for yourself. And so that is what meaning is. A purpose, by the way, you also need purpose. But purpose is future-oriented. Meaning is basically what your life is all about. If you can get those things together, and that's the people who come to me usually are in the mid-40s. And why? You know, when you're under mid-40, you're, you're immortal. But when you are you reach older, you know, people, you know, look in the mirror, you'll you know, lose your hair, you need glass, etc. You reach <laughs> mortality. And people around you are dying. You know, people you know are dying. And I would say you look at three mirrors. One mirror is yourself, and you see your wrinkles and whatever. Other mirror are your children, which brings up lots of memories. And then your parents, you say, my God, I don't want to become like them. I want to be. All those things go together. Well, you said something. Well, actually, it wasn't something you said. It was something you wrote in one of the articles that you sent me that you'd written recently. Or maybe it was an interview that you did. But I took this snippet out because it was just so beautifully communicated. But you said, happiness is something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. It's not my statement. And I don't know who first said it. Okay. If, is it is it a philosopher Immanuel Kant or is it a Chinese proverb? Okay. Of course, somebody, a well-known film star, said happiness is a good health and a bad memory, which I like too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Ingrid Bergman who said that <laughs> happiness is good health and bad memory. But this is a very simple formula, actually. Of course, when you get older, depending, I had it under my teachers at Harvard was Eric Erickson. He was a man of human development. It was interesting. He never had got he never got a university degree. Good for him. So he was self-educated. Wow. Yeah, a Montessori diploma. That's what he had. Became a university professor, the highest honor you get at, at Harvard. But he talks, he was the one who really focused on the adult life cycle also. And you know, certain ages had to do with integrity versus despair. There's a famous song by this French lady, Edith Piaf. Rien, rien, rien. I don't regret anything. Of course, you regret things, uh, some things. But looking back at your life, you know, I mean, and also Aristotle talked about that. One is hedonia, that you create pleasant moments for yourself every day. I hope for this interview is somewhat pleasant, you know. I, I mean, some people give energy, some people take energy and whatever. Then the other thing is looking back at your life. And Erickson talked about the polarity, integrity versus despair. And that's important. You know, do you look, look at your life with a, a, a whole list of failed chances? Or you feel, you know, you did what you could. You know, you made some mistakes and you learned from those mistakes. But in general, you look back. And, and I think an important thing is that you are in education. We are lucky that we are in education. We try to give, to help people. Yep. You, of course, you have to take care of yourself too. It's a mixture because otherwise you drain yourself. But the ability to give, the altruistic motive, actually is good for your mental health and you live longer as a result. So when Aristotle talked about hedonia and, 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 and hedonia and eudaimonia, it's th this mixture is important. How to create happy moments. Life consists out of happy moments. 
Of course, happy being happy all the time, you manage, you be institutionalized. But, <laughs> I, I wrote a little book on happiness when I was depressed. I'm not the only one. I think people who write books on happiness are probably depressed. But you realize how important <laughs> happiness is. Yeah. Like my uh, my my walking in the in the wilderness with this gnome is also a way of straightening things in my. Uh, I wrote a little book recently, which came out I think a few weeks ago, called "On Wisdom." And uh, and really, I, I I don't even have the same experience. The things I learned from my students. I mean, they are basically uh, like I now. When I was now there in Russia, I learned a lot from them. Yes. And it stimulated me you know, to, uh, to think what was really important, what is important, yep. and how to, you know, how to be the most authentic, you know, not having to. And that's the problem now when I talk at this breakfast with a colleague of mine, how not to have to put up your false self because it's a way of survival. Because whatever, you know what I'm talking about. You, know, yep. you don't get to knock at four o'clock in the morning yet, but yep. other things happen to you. Well, your your sense of curiosity and your output over your career is so incredibly admirable and your desire to help others make sense of their work what's happening around them helping them be more empathetic and reflective in their leadership i think it's an incredible mission because if we can help people just be more reflective it sounds it sounds simple, common sense, but it's not common practice, as you know. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean the famous poem of Larkin, uh, Philip Larkin. I know you know the poem. They fuck you up, your mom and dad. And you mean <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's very true. And so you try to, and they were, of course, well, as as he says in the poem, they were fucked up in their turn. So <laughs> the question is, as a parent, to prevent that. I also use the parent the. the Parable of the hedgehogs of Schopenhauer of the two hedgehogs in the winter. Actually, I wrote one of my books is titled that. But you, know, you have to create as a parent secure hedgehogs, not mm. anxious hedgehogs, and that will determine, of course, your partner relationship, your relationship at work, all those things to have an inner security. But if you're very insecure, like your hero Trump, not your hero, but Trump, I mean, you need every day telling people you're the greatest, you're the best, you're fantastic. I mean, listening to his son-in-law, he must have learned the formula. I remember him talking about the peace accord at the time, this phony peace accord, where Israel and Palestine. He, every second word he said, you know, uh, the great president, basically. You know, if you say that regularly, it's okay. You know, otherwise, uh, and that is very dangerous. My radar went up when when the statement was, I alone can fix this. And again, that's not a commentary on, on Republican or Democrat. No, that's an no. individual's statement that probably is false, regardless of your politics. Not me. It's not me, but we. We. Yes, we yes. yes exactly. Um, get out, get, I always say, get rid of the narcissist in your organization. You're always going to be somewhat narcissistic, but at least be aware of it. Yep. And see and see beyond that. You have a good partner. Say you're full of shit on a regular basis. <laughs> Every fool I've written on that. Although I use sometimes another term, the moral self, the wise fool, the fool of King Lear. Yeah. But of course, fools get beheaded on a regular basis. Yeah. That's not a problem. I think nobody at this point in time, when coming back to Russia, dares to say anything against Putin. That's the problem because bad things will happen. Well, sir, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I can't thank you enough for the work that you do and what you put out into the world. And uh, I, I also, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but in one of the articles, you referenced the starfish story. And I'll yes. put that as a teaser for <laughs> I, listeners into, into the show notes so that they can check out that story because I think it's a wonderful perspective to have. And uh, I, I hope you will come back you know, we could just have you have you come every time you re release a new book. So for like five, six times a year. <laughs> no, this, this is very unusual. I mean, eight books in two years is ridiculous. <laughs> it's completely ridiculous. Uh, yeah, the last book is not, I'm mean, still tinkering with it. It's finished, but I, I want to marinate it a little bit. That's what I usually do because on two, two books, I'm, I'm basically in publication now. So, I mean, I, I mean, my, my, my publishers hate me because I'm like one book. <laughs> In a number of years, you can do propaganda, but I eight books. How do you handle that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, be well, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Goodbye.
I don't know that I have some fancy way of summing up that conversation in mind right now. I do know that I just loved it. I could sit and listen to Dr. Manfred Ketz speak for hours and just hear his perspective on any number of different topics. And here's an individual who it would seem spends so much time writing as a way of understanding, as a form of therapy, as he mentioned in the discussion. In doing so, he can better make meaning of how he's experiencing the world. And again, that lens through his different experiences and in, in his educational background and his global travels, it just yields a very interesting individual to be in conversation with. So, Dr. Manfred, thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for helping us better understand what's happening in our context as Barbara Kellerman suggests, we have a leadership system, we have leaders, the individuals, we have followers, and we have the context. And that system is working in concert to yield certain results. At present, there are any number of wonderful things that our system is yielding. And there are some challenges that we need to address, fix, make better, and ultimately resolve. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much, as always, for checking in. Be well and take care. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.